The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio and this week's version of Healthcare Insight. I'm Ron Bachman, and we're going to talk to a real expert today on a number of issues that I'm sure this audience is going to find very important and insightful. We're going to speak with Mr. Christopher Rufo, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And he has been involved in a number of issues that I don't want to let go unstated in these programs for very long because the idea of critical race theory, of homelessness, of all sorts of social economic problems in this country that aren't being addressed, uh, he has become the focal point, the person at that leading edge, that spearhead of commentary and trying to bring this to the public awareness, to the media's awareness. So let me first start off because I think many in our audience, like myself, until I discovered uh, Mr. Rufo, uh, really may not be very familiar with him. So um, Christopher, give us a little bit of background so our audience knows where you're coming from and why you've become so popular in the uh, media and in the um, social media world these days. Sure. I think it's because I was really the first person to do the reporting, to actually substantiate the feeling that many people had that our institutions had been captured by left-wing ideologies. Um, and uh, this has obviously been a, a kind of concern for many people for a long time. But for many years, it felt like it was relegated to the university setting. And so conservatives uh, could say, well, you know, there's something crazy going on at Vassar College. It doesn't affect me. Then after the death of George Floyd in 2020, uh, it seemed like all of our institutions suddenly shifted overnight. So I did a series of reports on uh, diversity training programs in the federal government that got the attention of then-President Trump. Uh, then I shifted to looking at critical race theory uh, implemented as a pedagogical approach in K-12 through schools, uh, which set off this massive uh, 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 response or really revolt amongst parents nationwide. And now I'm focusing uh, on on uh, gender ideology as well, uh, looking at K through 12 schools, government agencies, and even the Fortune 100 companies. And so, what I think I've been able to do that's been able to galvanize attention is take these issues, establish a factual basis, saying this is what's happening, these are the documents, and then describing the origins, whether it's critical race theory or queer theory, in a way that uh, the average person, a parent in a public school district, for example can start to then push back. And that's really been my goal. I'm kind of an accidental activist, never set out to be an activist. Uh, but as it turns out, uh, I'm kind of leading this fight in many ways uh, in here in the United States. Well, praise the Lord that somebody is taking on these issues. They're so important to conservative values, to family values, to the history of the United States as to where we've been and trying to fight where some are trying to push us on the left uh, side of the political spectrum. So tell us a little bit more about how you're able to do this and putting the things that have been sort of in the elite academic world discussion that have been pushing us the wrong way, and you're trying to bring it forward to the American people in an understandable way, which quite honestly, many conservatives have not been very good at communicating the message of simplifying the message about what's really happening. If it doesn't affect them directly, they seem to sort of put it aside or ignore it and say, well, that's just the crazy people on the left coast and upper upper New England. So 
Tell us um, how you're doing this. What I've been able to do, and it's actually been um, uh, just a really fascinating and rewarding process, is to kind of take my very small team and we run the whole gamut. So we start at the very beginning, which is always creating new information. Uh, in the sense that we're fielding reports, we're talking to whistleblowers, we're authenticating documents, we're putting them on television, we're putting them on social media so people are aware of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden people said, well, how do we talk about this? You know, whether it's uh, people in, co- you know, congressmen uh, or state legislators or governors, hey, what's going on with critical race theory? What's the language I should be using? What can we do about it? And then I started putting together those uh, uh, kind of memos and, and an advisory capacity saying, hey, this is what's actually happening. This is what's going on beneath the surface, and this is what you can do about it. Well, I kind of feel like um, that you are doing what the Democrats have been doing for a long time. Hillary Clinton years ago used to set up a war room, which I believe still exists for the Democratic Party, where they get together and they come up with the messaging, the words that are so critical, and they get that out of their academia, Hollywood, um, New England, uh, West Coast elite to say how should we best describe it. And they focus group tested and then they, they present it to the media who says the same thing over and over again. It's always interesting to watch cable TV and watch the CNN and MSNBC and even the, uh, the mainstream media. And they use the same words over and over again. So, you know, somebody is feeding them uh, these words and these ideas to try to influence and and uh, structure the messaging that's going to the American public through these various uh, mediums. Uh, you're doing the same thing. I don't know if there's anybody else doing it, but I don't see Republicans sort of coalescing around ideas and words and concepts that can really relate uh, effectively to the uh, voting public and the general population. So I commend you uh, for doing that. Um, but what is the message that you would say uh, if you win the ideas – You're saying, I think that that's not enough because they control the power. So how do we move forward from thinking about winning ideas uh, to actually having influence over over others in recognizing the reality and the truth of what's going on in this world? Um, A lot of the debates that we've had in, in, in recent years kind of restrict themselves to that theoretical basis. It's almost like people who are playing politics, intellectuals, journalists, are having an Oxford-style uh, debate, uh, and there's this really, I think, an illusion that if you win the debate in the kind of marketplace of ideas, then your ideas will win. Uh, what mm-hmm. I've done is I've exposed that that's actually not true. It's not how it works. It's really actually a harmful illusion because when you have bureaucrats who have a very specific ideology that control public resources, they control the curriculum, they control human resources departments or uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion departments. Even if you have the better ideas, they have the political power. Well, Mr. Rufo, that's a pretty important discovery and claim that you're making, that winning the argument, which is sort of what conservatives uh, think is the most important thing, that's why people try to watch and educate themselves who are politically involved with, um, you know, Fox News and trying to get the arguments and the examples underneath that. But what's your main message then to the general population of conservatives, to those voters out there? What What is this discovery that you've uh, made that it's not just winning the argument in some academic sense because others have the power? What should be the message then to conservatives? And so my big 
takeaway and my big call really to conservatives is to say, um, sure, having a stimulating intellectual discussion is important. I enjoy it. Many people enjoy it. But we actually have to get down to that structural level of, of bureaucratic and political power. And I was able to show through the reporting, hey, this is what they're implementing in schools. These are the people who are doing it. Um, and these are people who have captured, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in public resources. And we should really focus the debate there if we want to have a chance to changing this uh, cultural pattern. So, Mr. Rufo, since you're an expert in all these areas, you've studied them more diligently and for a longer period of time than most anybody in the country. Uh, your reputation and your writings and your uh, messaging is um, is growing throughout uh, in uh, in all sorts of circles, from the political circle to the social circle. But let's focus on critical race theory. Um, what is it? Can you explain it to the general public? And how have you gone about sort of investigating uh, critical race theory and maybe even the roots of it? So I first became aware of critical race theory, really working backwards. As I mentioned, I was doing this series of reports on these diversity training programs in the federal government. And once you look at enough of these documents, they're all the same. They recycle the same 10 set of concepts or so. And so I said, where does this come from? What, what is the origin of the, uh, of this theory? And so I started working backwards, looking at the footnotes, looking at the suggested readings, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. really discovered over time the common intellectual framework is critical race theory. The definition is pretty simple. Critical race theory maintains that the United States is a fundamentally racist country and that all of its institutions from the constitution to the law, to the nuclear family, to the uh, social institutions, manners and mores preach uh, uh, the values of liberty and equality. But these are really just smoke screens for Mm -hmm, naked mm -hmm. racial domination. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm, they look at mm -hmm. the entirety of American history from Mm -hmm. the declaration uh, uh, to the constitution, even to Abraham Lincoln, and then to the civil rights act. And they say, it appears that there's racial progress. It appears that there's reconciliation. Um, but that's an illusion. Actually, it's just that power has become more sophisticated, more subtle and more insidious. And so you're starting from that point and then you're analyzing any social phenomenon and you're, you know, surprise, surprise, discovering, uh, uh not only that it's a manifestation of racism, but they try to say, uh, we're going to give you tools to, to, to show exactly how that's true. You know, Mr. Rufo, for many of us as parents, for example, all this stuff about critical race theory and gender identity and all that seemed to come out of the blue. All of a sudden, it's in the media. It's being exposed. We're finding teachers are bringing stuff in the classroom, teaching our young children things that we never thought would be taught in schools because when we were going to school, you couldn't get in. Uh, recess or gym because you had to focus on, you know, the core, uh, subjects. And now we got all this other stuff being taught. So how did this happen? Who started this whole process? What's the roots of all this, uh, from your research? Sure. So the critical race theory, the godfather of critical race theory was a, uh, black Harvard law professor named Derek Bell, who was hired as the first full-time uh, black law professor at Harvard in the late 1960s. And Bell is a really fascinating person. He set the tone of critical race theory. It's an ideology of, of extreme cynicism, uh, a, a kind of negative philosophy, a kind of negation-based philosophy. And he cultivated a network of young students. He was a very charismatic figure. So you've discovered the beginnings of critical race theory 
uh, at Harvard with this Derek Bell. Can you give us a little bit more background and history of what he was doing at Harvard and how this whole idea kind of grew and expanded so that we're kind of surprised by it today when we see it in our schools and our institutions and even our businesses. And Derek Bell's innovation um, was bringing this really acidic, this really kind of solvent uh, political philosophy. Um, he was the first person to really weaponize identity politics in the elite institution. He was famous not for his legal scholarship, um, uh, but actually famous for his political and campus activism. Um, <clears throat> you know, he would do things like write law review papers where he would fantasize uh, about about black law professors and the president of his university getting assassinated. Uh, and then he would conduct these protests outside their office to kind of raise the pressure to hire specific left-wing radicals in the legal academy. And so his students saw him uh, not only as an intellectual inspiration, but also they said he's, he's really tapping into the pragmatic politics. Wow, this is fascinating to me to find out the core and the individual responsible, the institution responsible for bringing the kind of radicalism uh, to the entire country. And it doesn't surprise me in many ways that that uh, original start uh, was at Harvard, the bastion of liberalism and uh, the organization that has been expounding left-wing ideology for a long time. Well, let's take a quick break, and we want to come back and continue this discussion. It's fascinating. I hope our audience will stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman again, and we are talking today about critical race theory, and many of the other social phenomena that seem to have caught many of us, certainly myself with grandchildren and children uh, in schools, that all this stuff is coming out of the woodwork. It seems to be prevalent every place, and we're trying to discover today with a senior fellow from the Manhattan Institute, a uh, Christopher Rufo, who has been studying this and has been trying to create the conservative messaging explaining how this got started, who started it, and where it's going. How, how does an idea like this sort of infiltrate the entire uh, economy and society without many of us knowing anything about it until it starts to affect our children? So we've already talked in the last segment about Derek Bell 
a professor, a law professor at Harvard who was a charismatic figure who was very radical, but you almost would expect that acceptance at Harvard, uh, the bastion of liberalism, but it can't be one person. So, Mr. Rufo, take us to the next step. After these crazy ideas are generated and promoted and developed a, a base of student support and a recognition of sort of a godfather figure of some of these um, radical ideas that the United States is a racist country and all the institutions are formed around racism, uh, sometimes a, a smokescreen for what's really um, underlying all of those things from our Constitution to all of our government agencies and our beliefs in the, um, in the country's uh, institutions. Um, there has to be something else. Who, who came next or who followed up or who added to this whole movement of critical race theory uh, that was really started by Derek Bell. You have Derek Bell in the legal tradition. The other person that I think is really essential for them, someone that they cite over and over in their big red book of critical race theory, um, is Antonio Gramsci. And mm-hmm. because what they wanted was not just Derek Bell, who had this kind of cynical and pessimistic philosophy that didn't seem to have much practical application beyond the campus. Um, and so they bring in Gramsci, of course, who uh, talks about how in order to win the battle of ideas, in order to have influence over the kind of economic and political base of a society, you want to infiltrate and then shift those those me- those mechanisms and institutions of cultural production and cultural patterning. And so they take uh, Derek Bell, kind of uh, uh, kind of radical racialist philosophy. Uh, uh, they take his identity politics and office politics, and then they graft onto it this m- kind of Marxian or Gramscian uh, uh, anthropology, uh, and then also the Gramscian tactic of trying to then gain influence by getting into uh, corporations, into schools, into other parts of the academy. And on that front, I think they've been remarkably successful. So this whole idea of critical race theory, uh, many have said that this is um, a cabal of the left wing, the radical, the Marxist wing of the Democratic Party, of the political ideology spectrum. Uh, and yet others would deny this and say, no, it's not anything from the left. It's just, um, you know, trying to give a, a truer history and picture of the history of the United States. So. What's your feeling? We had sort of the black national movement years ago that they kind of failed. We've got the Black Lives Matter movement that's going on today. We've got Antifa. We've got all these groups. Is this really a left-wing radical um, challenge, revolution, if you will, to the basic core principles of the United States? And so the critical race theorists, they say we're, we're, we're inspired by the black nationalist movements because we share in some sense the same goals. We want to have a kind of total overturning of society. We want to move away from capitalism. We want to move away from individual rights. We want to move away from uh, a kind of unfettered First Amendment free speech. Uh, and we want to have a kind of collectivist uh, uh, and, and racially egalitarian society in which the scales are balanced based on group identity. Okay, so let's continue this because I think it's absolutely fascinating and I hope our audience is finding it as fascinating as I am to take an idea, a radical idea that started in Harvard with a few students and a professor who's an activist, how that idea sort of spreads throughout the country and almost becomes accepted by so many corners of our society from the media to the 
um, to Hollywood, to the uh, New York elite, to the West Coast. How's this, and even getting to the South and into the Midwest, how is this happening? That's the story that I'm trying to develop here from your expertise and analysis. So what did they do next? Because they had an idea, uh, but they had some failures in the 1960s of promoting black nationalism. But where did they go next with these ideas? But what they found and discovered is that the, uh, you know, throwing hand grenades at the police in Oakland, California, is not going to overturn an advanced industrial society like the United States. So they said, what do we have? Well, we have access to elite institutions. We have a way of playing institutional politics that we learned from Derek Bell. You can essentially bully, shame, and pressure people uh, using all of those tactics of identity politics uh, to really get what you want. So why don't we just do that at scale? Why don't we use our, our position, uh, our prestige, our institutional power within these places to then bring forth and legitimize some of those more radical ideas that you might get from, let's say, Eldridge Cleaver or Angela Davis in the 1960s. So now this group with this radical ideology that they've been promoting basically out of Harvard, as you said, but then this cancer seems to be spreading across the country in various ways. So how do they then move? What was their philosophy about moving then into areas like education uh, how did that work? And they say, you know, we started as a legal discipline, but actually our greatest strength is in education. Mm-hmm. And so they built mm-hmm. up this entire pedagogy and they said to change the world again, like any left wing revolutionary has said for the last hundred and odd years, you have to change how children are taught. And so the critical race theorists were very focused on building a pedagogy. And so these are the ideas, systemic racism, whiteness, white privilege, intersectionality, uh, uh, et cetera. These kind of core set of ideas that are now ubiquitous at one time were really marginal academic ideas uh, 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 limited to just very few of these uh, scholars and intellectuals. So, Mr. Rufo, give us a summary then of what we've been talking about in your interpretation of uh, the critical race theory ideology, if you will. What what are they pushing? What do they want? How do you really uh, describe their connection to uh, Marxism? But I think when critical race theory kind of brass tacks, when it comes down to it, it's much more a direct Marxist revolutionary, uh, even almost a materialistic philosophy, because they take as the basis what they really want is a total leveling of society. Um, and when they're grasping around for solutions, uh, that's where I think you can really get to the crux of what critical race theory is. You take that old Marxist framework of oppressor and oppressed, a kind of war between the classes, You substitute racial categories Mm -hmm. for economic categories. Mm -hmm. So they say the history of the United States is not the history of the rich oppressing the poor, although it is in part, but it's really a history of of, of, of whiteness and blackness struggle uh, uh, between these two uh, uh, racial forces. Okay, Mr. Rufo, so you clearly made the connection between critical race theory as another sort of arrow in the quiver of the Marxists and uh, that's one of the ways they're trying to push their ideology. So what is it that, what is it that they want? And so what do they want? What is, well, you kind of read, you say, okay, you know, let's say we even buy into your premise. What would you want? Um, they want to overturn capitalism. Uh, they think that that, uh, they, they really think of whiteness and property as synonymous and mutually reinforcing. 
So unless you have the equality of property, the equality of wealth, um, you're always going to have a kind of racially based inequality because into our system of rights, into our system of private property, into our system of free exchange is embedded a racialist and really uh, a racially oppressive notion of, of whiteness. They're inseparable. Um, they also think that some of those key constitutional pillars or the key uh, 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 pillars of the Bill of Rights, such as free speech, uh, encourages or allows racial domination. So you need to have really a regulator or a state power uh, to suppress the speech of people uh, uh, who would uh, who would use it to reinforce that that uh, system of racial domination. So if the whole society and all the institutions are so racially motivated, how do they explain the ideas of the Civil War freeing slavery, of the 14th Amendment, of the Civil Rights Movement, of greater opportunity, and the way laws have been changed to sort of be more inclusive of the minority community. And even even the 14th Amendment, and then by but to a lesser extent, the civil rights after 1964, they say, no, 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 a lot of hand-waving. You know, Derek Bell famously said that, you know, Lincoln didn't uh, free the slaves in order to advance racial justice. And the 14th Amendment was really a kind of fake, uh, a, 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 a kind of, a fake expression of equality, um, all the way leading up even to the 1964 Civil Rights Act to desegregation. And so what do they want? They really want a, a focused state power. Okay, so let me jump in here. They want a focused state power called socialism and to the extreme Marxism, communism. Do they have examples of where they think this is going to go or uh, ideal examples of how this has worked in other parts of the world or in other times of history? Uh, they look to, for example, the decolonial, uh, post-colonial regimes in Africa that seized land and wealth and then redistributed along racial lines. Uh, that was one of their inspirations in the 1990s. And so when you put all these elements together, you're really getting the end of the constitutional system. It, because, look, if you don't have free speech, you don't have individual rights, you don't have equal protection under the law. Yeah, I apologize for jumping in here, but... As I hear all this intellectual, theoretical, let's get rid of free speech, let's get rid of property rights, let's get rid of the Constitution and try to equalize everybody, and they take a look at, um, you know, examples in post-colonial Africa as being successful, and I don't see that. What is it that they um, think is going to happen? What What's the alternatives that they're proposing, if any? How, how do you counter uh, what may seem on the surface sort of... Uh, you know, a rational idea, yeah, there's been dominance of one group over another. That's been the history of mankind from the beginning. There's always somebody who's more powerful or richer or has more position, has access to military control, has access to legal control. That That's just the history of humankind. And this pie-in-the-sky theory uh, to overturn everything uh, to go to what? What's the practical solution uh, argument? But the question is, okay, let's actually get down to the implementation. Let's get down into the practical unfolding of this historical experience. You start from a position, a starting point, let's say, around the American founding, where human slavery, for example, was a universal throughout space and time up until that point. Um, and the Declaration of Independence was a radical egalitarian document an attempt to raise human civilization up 
uh, from a kind of morass, up from a kind of uh, a, a kind of world of where this kind of domination was accepted. Did they transform every element in society in a single generation? No. But did they make significant progress towards those Republican values that they espoused? Absolutely, they did. Um, and so if you look at American history from that perspective, where you have the tragic nature of, of man, the tragic nature of society, you have these these people entering into a historical moment in which the world looked uh, 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 very bleak in a lot of ways. They're bringing that level of civilization, I think, undoubtedly upward. Well, of course, that's the view that most of us have learned in school many decades ago, but doesn't seem to be what's being promoted now that. We're a country that actually were rebellions uh, to the British, and we set a foundation, a structure uh, to improve the lot of mankind. And I think the history has shown we have raised more people out of poverty, given more freedoms to people than were ever uh, available under any kind of a dictatorship, uh, uh, a kingdom, uh, any kind of a, a autocratic ruler that history had ever seen. So that's where we come from. Well, let's take a quick break, and I want to come back and continue to uh, focus in on the issues uh, that are affecting our education system, whether it's critical race theory or some of these other radical ideas. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to The Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio. Live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. We're continuing with our discussion of a senior fellow from the Manhattan Institute, uh, Mr. Arufo, who is talking about critical race theory, the uh, growth of uh, socialism slash Marxism into the American education system and giving us an overview and a historical perspective of how this happened so quickly, or at least we thought it happened quickly, but it has been growing uh, for some time. Now, what I want to go back to uh, Mr. Arufo and ask him is tell us a little bit more about this um this history and the thinking behind it in terms of getting rid of the the current uh, constitutional system we have, of getting rid of um, free speech, uh, private property ownership, uh, the Eurocentric mentality, if you will, and how that's happening within this environment of this uh, radicalism that seems to be accepted in um, at least in elite circles. And so you start from that premise where they see nothing but domination. They see nothing but negativity, nothing but a kind of parade of horrors. Um, I think any honest looking at American history could say, absolutely, we've had a, 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 a real history of racial injustice, a real history uh, that has to be grappled with. But if you put it in the context of the highest ideals from the uh, Declaration to the Constitution to the speeches of Abraham Lincoln and the actions of Lincoln – you can see this kind of rising level of always moving towards the completion of or, or the, the realization of those highest ideals. You know, Mr. Rufo, I'm always troubled by looking back in time and recasting that with today's values or perspective. 
nobody is born perfect. We all make mistakes along the way, but we strive to do better. We try to change and evolve and try to be as inclusive as possible. And our institutions, you say, may be uh, focused on what some would call whiteness, white privilege, but it's not really white privilege. It's privilege for anybody who wants to participate in that system. And it's been very open. So the historical perspective shows that growth and change as we moved along through our history with the changes towards being more inclusive, more diverse, uh, assuring the basic principles that were set up in our um, Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. It's that set of principles that we've tried to live up to. But would anybody in their individual lives like to be looked back on and judged on what they did when they were younger and still growing and learning and evolving in their attitudes and opinion? I think not. And so that historical perspective, while it seems to resonate with the far left, I don't think really stands up uh, to scrutiny. So what else is it about trying to change this world that is not just from the historical perspective, but maybe from another point of view on that left radical uh, vision of the world? So that's one thing. You look at it from a historical context. Uh, and then the second thing is you look at it in a comparative way where you say, OK, let's let's even grant you. Let's say your argument is true. These are rationalizations used for domination. What other system would you suggest? What other country would you would you proffer as a as a better alternative? You know, I started my career as a documentary filmmaker. And so over that, you know, 10, 15 years of my first part of my career, I traveled to somewhere between 70, 75 different countries around the world. And so I got to see how pretty much all of the major population groups live, all of the major governing systems. Um, and so I think we should be very careful when we say we're going to throw out the entire Western tradition. We're going to throw out the entire American tradition. We're going to throw out the entire system of capitalism, the entire system of constitutional government in pursuit of some vague and fuzzy utopia where we can really level society completely. And I think you asked them, well, what countries do it better? What countries would you rather model your society on? Uh, uh, and, and then you start to actually have a practical view. You know, most of us think that we have been a participant in this wonderful system, this wonderful ideal. This for, We're fortunate to be born in the United States with the structure we have, with the institutions we have under the rule of capitalism rather than communism or dictatorship. And yet the Marxist viewpoint would say that we're exploiting everybody else in the world. We're exploiting the people of our country. We've taken the land from the Native Indians. We brought slavery over and and um, and made wealth out of the uh, the work that they provided and then give it back. We're taking money from the third world and resources and minerals, whatever from the third world. And um, and so we are exploiting the world. We are the evil white European population. So. That's the Marxist viewpoint, and they continue to make it over and over again so that it has seemed to be like, you know, the um, uh, the narrative that's been picked up by so many places in our own institutions that they're saying are racist, uh, whether it's the media or Hollywood or politicians uh, on the left and then Democratic Party. So how how does that resonate with this ideal uh, utopian world that is proposed versus the practical world? Uh, that we live in. This is not just a textbook experiment of getting rid of a country in the Constitution. It's going to have real ramifications, isn't it? 
Marxists talk a lot about the distribution of resources. Uh, they never quite talk about the production of resources. And in fact, all of the Marxist systems throughout history, uh, they're great at distribution because when you have all of the guns, you can take things from one person, give them to another. Uh, they're really bad at production. And so uh, uh, you, you have a kind of failure of production throughout the 20th century that was really catastrophic for tens of millions of people. The United States actually uh, has created a system of production that has raised the basic level of, of, of standard of living beyond the wildest expectations of almost anyone a century ago. And it's not out of exploitation. Um, it's actually out of cooperation. It's out of the division of labor. Uh, it's out of having a price mechanism uh, where you can exchange your labor. You can exchange your time. You can exchange your cash. Uh, you can exchange other goods in a way that everyone is winning. And That's a very interesting perspective of distribution versus production, where the United States system and capitalism has focused on production. People want to produce because they get to keep their own money. They get to generate their own wealth. They get to protect their own family in ways that they want. They create free financial freedoms. They have freedoms that are otherwise in our Bill of Rights of being able to move wherever they want. Nobody is really restricting them in so many ways on, on freedom of speech or, or um, uh, gun ownership or privacy, any of those issues. So uh, communism, Marxism doesn't allow for that. They may be very good at distribution of goods, but that makes everybody equally poor, which is sort of the history of what's happened as opposed to the United States and our capitalist system, which has been a real engine of production, more so than any other governmental system or economic system the world has ever seen. And so more people have risen because the reality is that your your standard of living is only as good and is directly related to your ability to produce goods and services that others want to buy from you or exchange for you. So standard of living is related to production, not distribution. The only way distribution works in a capitalist system is if you're totally stealing from somebody else. But if you don't have a productive system that everybody is producing, then you can only steal from others for so long, and everybody has the lower level of standard of living. So let me ask this. What about what we see from the ethnic groups uh, that are moving to the United States from other countries? How have they fared versus maybe where they would have, if they had stayed in their own countries, uh, their their standard of living or their economic uh, wealth. How does that compare when they move to the United States? So if you look at even, for example, to say, well, uh, uh, comparing it to the third world, if you look at the ancestry of, of, of all of the different populations in the United States, European Americans, African Americans, Latin Americans, etc., even down to the ethnic level, um, uh, you know, being a European in the United States, you are much wealthier on average than being a European in Europe. And the same holds true from all the other populations. And then this is the reason why people vote with their feet to come to the United States from all over the world. So I think the general population with the biases of the news media and the left-wing uh, commentators are on many cable channels that there's a dislike, a hatred for the United States. But the data I think you've turned up doesn't show that other people from other countries uh, dislike the United States. That's why they keep coming here. As you said, they vote with their feet. So they have to be uh, proud of the opportunities they have once they get here. What, what what do you think about how this plays out in terms of 
Uh, are we getting the real story from the media on the, such dislike and even hatred for uh, the American dream, the American system? You ask people in survey data, and even anecdotally, I think this is true you know, across the board, um, people believe in the United States. And in fact, the only people who don't believe in the United States are uh, left-wing whites that have high levels of education. Uh, uh, and so when you ask uh, uh, African-Americans, when you ask Latinos, uh, 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 for example, um, you know, is the United States the greatest country in the world? People still say yes to a great extent. When you ask uh, 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 people, if, if you work hard, can you still get ahead? That basic bedrock principle of the United States, they still say yes. Everyone except for people in the kind of upper crust of our elite institutions. Okay, Mr. Rufo, what you're saying is most people still believe in America. They believe in the American dream, except for this small group of elites uh, in the Harvards of the world or the people who think they're so uh, much above everybody else. And they probably have enough wealth that none of this really affects them. So they they have this uh, white guilt, if you will. Well, what does that show? Let's get back to the critical race theory. What does this show about our educational system that the uh, – far-left ideology, Marxist, wants to take over and educate our kids so that they come up with more of an acceptance of Marxism. So the critical race theory is a part of that. How does how does that fit into your analysis? And the same thing holds true when you talk about critical race theory. Uh, Manhattan Institute did a poll, for example, asking parents, uh, white parents, black parents, uh, Asian parents, uh, uh, Latino parents, do you think public schools should be teaching that the United States is systemically racist? Do you think public schools should be teaching the doctrine of white privilege? Every group, black, white, Asian, and Latino, they all said, no, we don't want this in our schools. Okay, so if all these groups don't want it in the school, but we know it's getting in there and it's like a cancer growing in there, how have the Marxists sort of made that happen? How have they argued to actually put this in, what's their viewpoint that seems to be resonating with far too many school boards and teachers? Um, how, how do they think about overcoming the fact that there is almost universal opposition from every subgroup? And so the, the Marxists and then the critical race theorists have to develop this really uh, sophisticated and almost absurd uh, idea of false consciousness. Mm-hmm. And, and they're saying... You know, the working class in the United States, the racial minority in the United States, all of the people who we know are oppressed, uh, to, to, uh, just as oppressed as they were uh, under Jim Crow, just as oppressed as they were under slavery. They actually make this argument, which is just so absurd. They're really, truly oppressed. They just don't know it. And it's up to us to explain it to them. And even if they don't agree with us, we're going to change the entire society on their behalf. So I think... As you describe what's actually happening out there, I happen to agree. I hope most of our audience does uh, agree or is now seeing the light if they weren't thinking about this otherwise, is that the hypocrisy of what is being done uh, for the benefit of people in actuality is for the consolidation of power for a few who are promoting as if they're trying to help the masses, but they're really uh, just helping themselves. So talk about that aspect of this elite group saying, well, I'm just going to do it for the the poor people, the minorities. I'm going to help benefit them when, in fact, they're just benefiting themselves. A, a kind of hypocrisy of critical race theory is that these are the most privileged people in the world, the most privileged people in human history to a, a great extent, regardless of racial background. 
Um, trying to impose their ideology on working class people of all different racial backgrounds who reject it. Well, we're running out of time for this segment, so let me stop you there. We'll go to a commercial break, and we'll be right back and complete these thoughts and understanding of critical race theory and what the Marxists are really doing to our world and our economy and our country. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio for this final segment this week. And today we are talking to a senior fellow from the Manhattan Institute who's been very instrumental in developing papers and policies and discussions and debates on areas like critical race theory and the development of Marxism across the United States and how the cancer of socialism growing into Marxism is working across the country and trying to understand. He's done a great job of explaining how this started and how it continues to expand and what the what the game plan, what the strategy, what the tactics are for this uh, far-left ideology. So I want to go back uh, to this whole issue of that the people who hate this country most seem to be highly educated whites, maybe a, a white guilt complex or whatever it is, but that seems to be the one segment that is the strongest supporter of these Marxist ideas. And I want the, uh, uh, the senior fellow um, to tell us a little bit more about how the Marxist uh, strategy works in imposing something on a people who really don't want it if you ask them questions about, you know, do you believe in the United States? Is the American dream still alive? Do you have more opportunities here? And the data that shows that anybody from another country, from another culture, does better than the average person from the country that they came from. It's only the people who seem to live here in the United States that seem to either hate the country or dismiss the opportunities that they've been given. So 
Um, Mr. Rufo, tell us a little bit more about this idea that uh, the Marxists are going to impose uh, this philosophy on the American people and how you think they're going to do it. It's the same Marxist kind of jam that they get into. The, the, the proletariat, the working class, uh, the, 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 the racial minority doesn't want what they're selling. Uh, so they're just going to do it for them. I, I think it's kind of a, a reversal of their entire philosophy. It's a kind of imperial, intellectual imperialism, uh, uh, that they use the kind of coded language of racial category, uh, that's, that's really, uh, been totally, uh, uh, totally disconnected from the reality of even race in this country. So what you're verifying is we basically have this, fantasy world, this uh, utopia, far-left ideology of everybody being equal and everybody uh, being equally prosperous and having a good life under some governmental control. But we know that that's never worked. There's not an example they can point to. And I think your explanation of that the Marxist philosophy or alternatives that are being suggested are good at distribution of wealth, but not at the production of wealth, which actually creates uh, a difference be, and some uh, higher income and some lower income, higher wealth and lower wealth, but that's the result of a system that gives everybody the opportunity uh, to be at either end of the uh, spectrum, either rising up uh, in wealth or having enough wealth that ultimately is lost for whatever risky behavior is is engaged in. So tell me a little bit more about how this has played out in history and are there some examples that you would point to? It's all that, of the things uh, that were that K through 12 students are learning today. Uh, you know, white privilege, anti-colonialism, uh, kind of Marxist economics, etc. Um, that was at that time a radical fringe idea that has now moved into the mainstream. But you look at the backgrounds of all these people. They're all elites. They're all people who are the sons and daughters of bankers and politicians and wealthy people in New York City, wealthy people in San Francisco. They were living on, you know, houseboats in Marin while they were, uh, uh, you know, planting bombs in police stations. Okay, I hear what you're saying, and maybe the best example of that uh, spoiled rich girl is uh, Patty Hearst, who came from, you know, multi-million, billionaire uh, family. So tell me a little bit more then about the psychology of these people and what the danger is of sort of underestimating them. And so you kind of say, well, what is the psychology here? What's happening? I think it's a, a couple things. Certainly it functions as a luxury belief to the extent that they're insulated from the consequences of those beliefs. I think we can't underestimate two things, however. One is that a lot of these people are just true believers, the people who are most fervent. If you're going to pick up a gun for example, like Eric Mann uh, uh, did, and shoot it into the window of a police station in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you have to be deeply committed. And I think you see that same spirit among people who are uh, members of Antifa, people who are members of BLM. Um, they are really just possessed by this idea. And I think there's a certain amount of attractiveness for people who are maybe bored, people who maybe feel resentful. Uh, they can fuel that resentment and that boredom into revolutionary action. And then they can take the mantle of romanticism. Yeah. You know, they can be Che Guevara. I mean, that's a very attractive figure. Well, you've done enough surveys and you've had enough experience as a journalist traveling to multiple countries, meeting most of these people. Um, I don't know what your background is being a psychologist, but just as an observer of life, observer of these folks, and as 
uh, detail and as close uh, upfront up viewing as you've had of these ideologues. Give us a little bit more of the psychology uh, behind these people so that maybe we can better understand them. There's a sense of, of, of fulfillment, I think, stemming from anger, resentment, um, uh, a, a sense of guilt. You have this complex web of emotions that are then manipulated by media, manipulated by activists, manipulated by other leadership. And so there's that latent. I think there's also a sense among people, look, these are my peers. You know, I have a, a lead education. Uh, I've traveled in those circles. I've lived in those cities. Um, there's a sense, uh, I think, among many of my peers in a way, especially the ones who are left. Um, and I was on the left for many years, kind of graduated uh, rightward over time. Uh, there's a sense that um, uh, uh, that they don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. There's a deep mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. of inferiority. So I think I understand what you're saying about people who have privilege. They feel guilty about it. They, they have even a sense of inferiority, whether they will admit that or not. And so they're trying to virtue signal to the world and to their friends and to their associates that they're compassionate uh, towards others when, in fact, they're really not. They're just trying to offload their own guilt. So what should people who might have that feeling, how should they redirect their energy, their efforts, their time, talent, and treasures, if you will, to more productively help society as opposed to voting in a kind of destruction of society? It's sort of a internal suicide uh, that they're proposing it, or at least uh, casually accepting because they don't think it's going to affect them, but it's affecting and hurting so many people at the lower end that they propose to be helping. What, what, what should they really be doing? Even people who come from wealthy backgrounds, there's a tremendous pressure, right? If you're born to that level of privilege, it's very high to, very difficult to maybe exceed uh, your family. In the past, though, we had a kind of paternal structure uh, where you're saying, hey, even your kind of uh, 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 kind of wayward son of a wealthy family, you have to come into the fold. You have to be a good steward of these resources. You have to, you know, build libraries. You have to build uh, the opera house. You have to do great works that show that you can assume the responsibility of this wealth and prestige and then really provide it back to the community in a substantial right. way. So what you're saying is that people who have benefited from a system that they've grown up in or moved to, that um, they share that time, treasure, and talent, in particular at the end of their, their lives, the talent and, I mean, the treasures that they've accumulated, um, how best to share that, how best to be a good steward of those funds rather than just accumulating. You can't take it into the hereafter. So... Um, many of those people, uh, instead of sharing the wealth that they have and finding a way to productively use that to help people, um, they take in just writing checks as opposed to being more actively involved in something that they can believe in uh, seems to be where you are at. So tell me a little bit more about that perspective of what wealthy people, truly wealthy people, the, the Bill Gates, the, um, the, the the people, you know, Amazon and uh, Tesla, all those um, owners and developers, uh, Elon Musk, um, 
where, where, what should they really be doing with the kind of super wealth that they've created? That's very difficult. It's much easier to, you know, put on the keffiyeh, uh, uh, march at a BLM protest, and then, you know, run a family foundation Heck. writing checks to a bunch of useless nonprofits. You get the status, you get the prestige, you get the love, you get the identity as a kind of class traitor, but it's an adolescent posture of rebellion from a generation that refuses to grow up and become a father, let's say, uh, or become a, a, a mother, become a kind of matriarch figure. And so you have these permanent children that are in eternal re re revolution against their parents uh, that for them are, are symbolically represented in this society. And they feel like they can stuff that feeling or satisfy that feeling with these kind of uh, 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 the sugar high of, of revolution by play acting. Um, but it, it, it deals tremendous damage to real people. Well, many people in the audience listening is might think that you are uh, unfairly uh, psychoanalyzing um, uh, people on the left. But the reality is that's where you came from. You had these thoughts. You understand the perspective of the left from your own thinking and your own ultimate evolution. Tell us a little bit about that, because I think that really adds a lot of weight to your commentary and your ideas and opinions. And, you know, the reason I'm a conservative, as opposed to where I started 10, 15 years ago as a kind of on the far left, is that I saw in the international context in many places uh, what happens when these ideas take hold. But I also saw, I even spent five years in three of America's poorest cities observing these communities. The theory of systemic racism, white privilege, intersectionality, etc., all the solutions that they proffer are very good if you want to achieve social status and position in an Ivy League university. They're disastrous once they trickle down or are imposed on poor people of any racial background. And so this, 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 this feeling, this psychological profile, I, I think it's one of the most important things of our time and why people on the left have furiously uh, 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 kind of rejected it and furiously, like, uh, in a deranged way, lashed out against it because you're calling them to responsibility. Well, let me wrap up this week's program by asking you, there's got to be a lot of frustration where you've seen the light, you were liberal, you became more conservative because you saw the disastrous impact that the far-left ideology, the socialist, and Marxist certainly, uh, impact on the average American, the lower uh, socioeconomic from middle class on down, and how it really destroys those people, but it gives power to those people who are saying they're there to help others. So give us a wrap-up on what your feeling is about um, this whole movement of Marxism. I can't spend any more time with these phony people, uh, with these people who are the sons and daughters of immense privilege that are acting, revolu playing revolutionary, trying to impose a set of ideas that I know out of my own observation in all the countries around the world, as well as spending significant time in the poorest places in the United States, lead to nothing but disaster. Well, I hear what you're saying, and the explanations of what's going on have been very clear and concise today. And I hope our audience has heard it as well and can understand all the ideas that you have presented that may be different from their own personal views. I think we've got a very conservative audience that needs the kind of understanding and arguments uh, against their neighbors or their friends or family members against the movement to the left. So I hope you will continue to provide the kind of intellectual support, the kind of ideas 
to the conservative movement, to the Republican Party that can help them win elections and stop this cancer that's growing among us and stop this leftward uh, movement uh, in our country. So thank you for being here and join us again next week for Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.